This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 15. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I am here with Susie Digby. She is known to her friends as Susie Digby, but she is also known to you because you are her friend today. Uh, She is also Lady Eatwell, the Order of the British Empire, and is an internationally renowned choral conductor, choir master, and music educator from the UK. She has a passion to get the nation singing. She has trailblazed the revival of singing in schools and in the community in the UK for over two and a half decades. She was the judge on the BBC television series Last Choir Standing, a competition for Britain's favorite choirs, which attracted 10 million UK fans and many more worldwide. She judges the BBC School Choir of the Year competition and BBC Chorister of the Year and has contributed to many other programs. Susie is the founder and principal of Voices Foundation, the UK's leading music education charity that she established in 1993, which works with schools to deliver sustainable solutions to teaching music at a primary level. Over 1 million children and 60,000 teachers have benefited from the scheme. She has worked for many years as an advisory teacher in disadvantaged and challenged schools in the UK and worldwide. You can read about that endeavor at www.voices.org.uk. Her conducting work has seen her perform in some of London's most prestigious concert venues, including the Royal Albert Hall, St. John Smith Square, St. James Piccadilly, and the Royal College of Music. She has conducted prestigious orchestras, including the Brandenburg Choral Festival, Academy of Ancient Music, and she works regularly with the members of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. She adjudicates choir competitions and gives lectures and workshops internationally. Her choirs have performed with the Rolling Stones and recorded with Duran Duran. Now, Choir Nation, I've given you a small intro, but if you would like to read uh, Susie Digby's full bio, head on over to www.ryanguth.com forward slash 015. And I guarantee there are so many more goodies there for you to check out at, uh, again, ryanguth.com forward slash 015. All right, Susie, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open, and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? I certainly am. Well, perfect. The downbeat segment is our biographical segment of the interview, where we talk about the moment that you knew you were going to dedicate your life to conducting or music. Can you bring us there and and help us uh, understand what helped you follow your dreams? Yes, I can. I mean, I, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't um, a musician. I, I sang from the age of three and never stopped singing, really. And because I love working with people, um, with groups of people, very soon I was conducting. Um, I think in my, in my late teens, I was already conducting groups. And it just evolved from there really all over the world because I've lived in many different places. Um, I did. I was also a pianist, but I found sitting in a room on my own, uh, practicing for hours, although I, I enjoyed it, it, it's really people that I love. So I abandoned the idea of becoming a pianist, really, probably when I was about 20, and focused then very, very strongly on conducting, which I adore doing. 
So how about your musical upbringing? Did you have a, a musical family or, or how did you get into it to begin with? Yes, well, I had a father. I have a father who is um, so do I. Ab- okay. <laughs> absolutely passionate about music. He's an amateur musician, but principally, he's probably the most knowledgeable person I know about the arts generally. But he was he was just so passionate about great music. And I used to long for him to take me to concerts from a very, very young age. And so it was really um, because of my will to please him in the early days that I I, pl- I practiced the piano a lot. I learned the bassoon. I picked up all kinds of instruments that he liked. And and um, and the whole singing choral thing came out of, again, his passion. We used to listen a lot to the early recordings of King's College, Cambridge at Christmas time. We used to listen to Bach, the great Bach passions, a great deal. So that was really in my bloodstream from from a very, very young age because of him and his passion. You know, you, you obviously went to the university for choral music or for what what was your like what was your study then well my study was um as i say from a very young age i was studying piano i was studying other instruments and i was studying singing and then my formal education music started when i read music specializing in music analysis at king's college london okay and then i i studied i continued to study piano at the partly at the guild hall partly with various teachers all over the world. And then um, the the real turning point came when I was awarded a Winston Churchill Travelling Fellowship uh, in 1990. And I travelled around the world uh, studying um, choir, studying systems of music education that were chorally based. But I really wanted to see the great choral programmes around the world that had been led and created by very, very inspirational individuals. And I studied them and I did a massive um, sort of thesis on it. So I went, uh, I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe. I went to the Midwest America. I studied the big choral programs there. I went to Canada to study the Toronto Children's Chorus. And then of course, because I'd lived in the Far East for, for many, many years, I had quite a good overview of the the sort of global scene. And I was very, very interested in children's choirs and especially children's choirs that were giving children the opportunity to perform um, very high quality and sophisticated music. So putting children on the stage in a a sophisticated musical context. So so to allow them as I did in church really to perform great, great music early on. Okay, so now you're speaking to a mostly American audience, and I, I yes. want to sort of figure out um, and maybe help Ameri- you know, the Americans here in Choir Nation to understand the difference between a choral upbringing in the UK and a choral yes. upbringing in the US. Now, if I asked most of my guests, you know, when did they know they were going to dedicate their life to music, they would have most likely said, well, I had an influential teacher in my high school career, or uh, maybe in college, I I entered as one thing, and I really decided I I loved music, so I just followed my gut and went that way. What is a a choral upbringing like in the UK? Well, the UK is um, really remarkable, because we're the only country, well, England is the only country in the world that has a 500-year 
unbroken history of choir schools and cathedral choir schools. So really, it's been going strong ever, you know, for, for the last 500 years. And if you take the sort of iconic centre of that, the beating heart, if you like, the jewel of the crown, that's King's College, Cambridge, which is, I mean, I'm, I live next door in Queen's College, where my husband is president. So I'm kind of, I'm in my natural habitat in a place that's been sort of thriving with the choral tradition for for five five centuries. And my father took me when I was nine to sing in the local church choir. But of course, um, singing in a local church choir um, in, in England, you're you're immediately singing Talis and Bird and the great the great Tudor, the great Renaissance English masterpieces, you know, right from the beginning. And that is not the case here at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it always amazes me that the sort of, you know, the the standard pieces that everybody sung here, you know, the the Bird Five Part Mass, for example, which is just a, a, a piece of perfection. You know, I've been singing that since I was nine, and I, I'm always amazed if, when I come across choral people who are very, very advanced to who don't know, I've never sung it. Or um, I've just had a visitor actually over from California and the minute she stepped off the plane, I said, right, you're singing a concert tonight. I handed her a score and we did Birds Sing Joyfully, which is a, a standard piece that every chorister in this country has sung. And um, and assuming that she would she would know it, she did a brilliant job, but she, she didn't know it. And it's extremely difficult, you know, if you don't know it. So one makes these assumptions um, about sort of core repertoire. And then in certain parts of the world, of course, you can't make those assumptions. And I, I find that quite interesting. Is there, this is interesting. I'm, I'm going to like jump down this rabbit hole a little bit here, but um, you, you said, okay, that the birds sing joyfully is a piece that every chorister in the UK would, would know and understand. Is, is there sort of a, do you have like a, a list of, of like core pieces that you feel like every chorister should know, period? Well, I haven't drawn up the list, but I could draw it up very, very quickly. I mean, I think that most choristers in this country, and there are various routes through which you come to the sort of pinnacle of choral excellence. Um, and, you know, most people share that uh, that experience. So, of course, you've got the, the English Renaissance masterpieces, Talis Bird, etc., Gibbons. And then you've got the Victorian English music, you know, Howells, Stanford, all that. And I know that, I mean, a lot of my choral friends in America are, are, are quite familiar with that repertoire mm -hmm. as well, that, that, that Victorian repertoire. And I think there's a sort of growing interest in the English Tudor choral music. Um, it's interesting that in California recently, there was um, a concert in the Disney Hall, which was devoted to um, Tudor choral music, and it was it was packed, and people love it. And also in in Carnegie Hall, um, um, I was talking to Clive Gillinson the other day, who runs Carnegie Hall, and he was saying there is, you know, a growing interest in Renaissance choral music um, in amongst his audiences, which I find really interesting. Because for me to be a great choral musician, you absolutely need that that basis. Right, it's you like know, it's like ballet before you learn to tap. You know, it's like yeah, it's I mean, it, it, the core. it because it sings on the breath. It's so it's so um, it's so fundamental. It gives you so much of the literature on which to build. You know, the the early polyphony um, and the early polyphony of Talis and Bird. And once you can sing that, 
you know, it gives you a sense of line, it gives you a sense of polyphony, it gives you a sense of harmony, it gives you a sense of phrasing, it gives you musicianship at so many levels. And so when I'm teaching choirs, um, it's absolutely to me fundamental that they have that as their kind of staple, if you like. Mm-hmm. And once they once they've cracked that and they know how to sing that well, they can pretty much sing anything, I think. That's great to know. And you know what? I think there's so many teachers that are listening to this right now um, that I think are going to go back and they're going to look over their repertoire for the coming year and say, you know what? I might I might throw in a couple more beautiful Renaissance or Tudor uh, English works uh, for that for that very reason. Because I think they're going to agree with you. They're going to look back on their education and say, I remember when I sang when I sang that and what it did for me. And uh, they're going to agree with you. And I think... I literally myself, I'm going to go back and look over my my repertoire choices for my my choirs now that I'm hearing yeah. you talk about that. Well, so, it's very interesting because the pitch range is good, you know, and that the, the inter and once you've got used to the it, rhythmically, it can be quite challenging. But once you've got used to that kind of landscape, if you like musical landscape, it sits in the voice so well, mm-hmm. and it sits in it and it travels with the breath so well, and it just develops you as a choral musician so quickly oh yes and your ear um it becomes extremely acute very very quickly because of the way it's because of the architecture of the work and it is a it is and the other thing i've noticed is even when i work with inner city kids you know um who you might think for a start we got you might have a religious issue you might have all kinds of issues without exception if you teach it well they love it Every single chorister loves singing that stuff. And it goes back, you know, I, I, I think a lot about repertoire. And I think that, and I judge hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of choirs. And where they fall down, most choirs fall down, is in their choice of repertoire. And I think that um, repertoire has to be of high quality for young people to love it. And really, with that stuff that's lasted for centuries and which is so vocally comfortable, you can't go wrong, really, because it it, it, it becomes such a pleasurable thing to mm-hmm. sing. And once you've, once you've cracked that, you know, you can sort of throw anything at, at, at people, really, as long as it's high-quality repertoire. Well, there's a reason why it's lasted forever, you know, and there's also, there's also that sense that if the, conductor, if the conductor buys into it and the conductor is invested in it, the conductor will be really, really uh, well-equipped to sell that to their choir and they're exactly. going to, the choir is going to love it too. Exactly. You've got to be passionate. And I think, I think choir conductors, you know, and, and I've, I've worked with so many different conductors from some, so many different um, um, genres of music making from, you know, remote village school choirs through to, you know, fully professional international choirs. And, and it's very difficult sometimes for conductors to choose repertoire and I and I and I know that myself because I've made many errors in choosing repertoire myself, you know. And I think that um, once you've got the repertoire right, and it's high quality, it's really good stuff that you you love yourself as a conductor, then you know you've ninety percent of your job is done. As you say, you, you've got to be passionate. You've got to love it, and then they will love it. That's a great answer, and and I hope Quarnation is listening listening hard to all of this because this is really. Uh, we definitely jumped down a rabbit hole here, but I, I'm, I'm glad that we did. Um, let's move on just for the sake of time uh, and respect to our, our audience. Um, let, me, let me bring us to 
you don't need to make it long, but the worst musical moment, or maybe um, a moment that you would have considered a failure. And we had a little bit of a talk about this, and it's kind of—I think it's kind of funny. So um, I'm sure Choir Nation would love to hear the story about the time that you forgot your trousers. <laughs> yes, I've never lived that one down. I mean, but to preempt, just as a preamble to that, mm-hmm. I would just say a couple of things. First of all. I so identified with um, my, my a friend of mine who was one of the greatest conductors of the world, who's sadly no longer with us, Sir Colin Davis, who said when he was asked about his career and how he'd become so great and so wonderful, he said, my career is a series of humiliations. And I think that is so much the case for conductors. So there's just constantly things going wrong and constant but the other thing I want I would like to say is that maybe it's my upbringing in the Far East but I don't really recognize the word failure I recognize the word you know I recognize that when you when things go there are disasters that you you they're very 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 valuable because you learn from them but the concept of failure as such is something that I can't really quite understand. It's it kind of not in my vocabulary. I don't. Um, so so it's a difficult one. But certainly the most embarrassing moment was when I just um, I, I um, do something every year called Scratch Youth Messiah at the Albert Hall. And we have 2000, the Royal Albert Hall, which is a, this amazing venue in London. It's one of our most beautiful and incredible sort of dome like we have 7000 in the audience. And um, the the, la- the proms are there every year, etc. And once a year, I get two thousand kids from all over the country to come and put together on the day a scratch youth messiah. Oh lordy! <laughs> and we just we've just been awarded best classical music education initiative nationwide for this. So oh very- wow, that's so cool. But anyway, so they come along in their buses, and we have we we sweat for three hours putting it together with a big orchestra. And then I have about 10 minutes while these 7,000 audience are coming in to rush into my changing room and get ready. And last year, uh, I got into my changing room. I put on my shirt. I put on my tie. I put on my jacket. And then where are my trousers? No trousers. 7,000 people, big orchestra, 2,000 singers all waiting for me and nobody around. I mean, there was nobody. Everyone was just running around trying to keep everyone in control. And I just flew into a mad panic because I'd been conducting in this sort of bright orange shirt and jeans that everybody could see me in because 2,000 people spread out is quite hard to see. Oh, yes. So I rumbled around, rummaged around in my bag and I found a pair of black leggings and I put on my black leggings, but I looked as if I was about to do dressage on, a, on horseback. <laughs> <laughs> with my with my my baton as it looked like a sort of riding crop so anyway i i walked out with my head high and conducted in my black leggings and um and it came off but i did get a lot of text messages the following year saying have you remembered your trousers oh lord <laughs> hey listen if you can if you can as we say you know if you can rock those leggings you go girl right you go girl well, I- I'm not so sure. I, I made sure that all the photographs of me with with me of my from the waist up. <laughs> there you go. That's great. I, you know, I had a very similar. I had a very similar experience. Um, I actually forgot my pants too at a at a very important concert. It was my the first concert I ever gave with the mu- musical organization that I had started through my own entrepreneurship activities, and I totally forgot my pants there too i had everything i had the, my tuxedo jacket my, my yes. tie everything but just no pants and i ended up having to wear i have having to wear jeans with my tuxedo 
and people thought that it was like some really cool trendy like tuxedo <laughs> thing. She carried it off. But we were we were in a church where um, every I, I had it was so small that I had to be conducting from from the like third pew. So luckily, if if you unless you really paid attention, you couldn't see me from the waist down. So I just <laughs> looked a little silly in the reception afterwards. So actually, I have just thought of another very very terrible moment. Okay, <laughs> and that was in the home of the Duke of Buccleuch. It's called the English Versailles. It's absolutely amazing house. And we were doing, we were doing a concert where we travelled from the chapel. We did some sacred music in the chapel then we traveled to the gardens and we did magicals in the gardens and then we came to the great hall and we did a, a new piece an amazing new piece new. but in the chapel we we had we'd thrown together a performance at the very last moment this is with voce chamber choir my amateur very good amateur choir and it was very hard to read and um we were we were trundling along with this pergolesi mass and um uh the second the sopranos got completely lost and I was desperately trying to sing both soprano parts, bailed <laughs> out. And then I, I lost my place in the, in the music. And in the middle of the concert, I actually said to the choir, what page are we on? And they have never, ever let me forget that. Oh. When does a conductor ever say in the middle of a concert to the choir, what page are we on? Hey, this... I wanted the earth to swallow me up. But that was one of the classic moments, I have to say. We're, we're all human. These things happen. These things happen. Well, I'm, what was was the Duke okay? Oh, he was wonderful, okay. and luckily he we were asked back, so we must have been okay. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Okay. See, see, Choir Nation. These things work out. They work out. These are humanizing moments. We all have them, and uh, and and things work out. And you get in, you get asked back. This is wonderful. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, hopefully. All right. So, what is your proudest musical moment to date? Ah, oh, my goodness. There have been some amazing moments. I think probably my proudest moment happened has happened this last February, where I've started a professional group called Aura, O-R-A. Um, and after my most famous pupil, Rita Aura, you may have heard of her. Um, she was a pupil. She came to me as a, as a child. With, she was a Kosovan refugee. And she's now the judge on The Voice. Mm -hmm. in, and she's a global superstar. And I'm very proud of her. But aura also means it has all sorts of connotations, oral, aura, etc. Mm -hmm. So I called my new professional group Aura. And we've just done two recordings of two, two one-hour albums, which we're um, releasing in February. We may be releasing them online bit by bit leading up to Christmas. But um, with the best recording team in the world and 18 of the best singers in the world. And I've commissioned new works to reflect um, um, Renaissance masterpieces. And these two recordings are absolutely fantastic. Um, and I, I'm still pinching myself. And we're launching them in February. So I think probably in terms of a musical achievement, um, this, the, these recordings with Aura are right up there. In terms of live performances, um, probably my... Haydn's creation, which we did the first ever fully staged with video imagery, and we staged the whole thing with cat. We built catwalks above the audience, and in this big industrial space, and um, we worked with um, a fantastic orchestra, fantastic choir, and soloists. 
and that we got rave reviews in the in the times in the telegraph in all the the broadsheets and that was a, a marvelous moment i thought we'd really broken through in terms of production values and performance quality for that performance it's really cool choir nation you should go check out um it I, what's the website I, i've seen the teaser oh, for both, both futures and this is this is uh, my desperate desperate desire to bring 16 to 22 year olds back into the concert hall for live concerts as audience this will do it i love i yeah. loved it i saw the just just like maybe a five minute sort of teaser of the That's it. the creation and i saw i saw what also saint matthew passion that's right. We we staged the Matthew Passion. I did a new translation of it also. And that was amazing. So so if you go to vocalfutures.org.uk, um, there are video clips of these productions and they're very, very modern. We 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 found this co disused concrete factory or cement factory as you would call it in America, in the bowels of the earth in central London, underneath Westminster University, and we converted it into a theatre. And we wanted to make it edgy and exciting. And the first, the Matthew Passion, I worked with the Orchestra of Age of Enlightenment. And um, the second one, I created my own orchestra with, full, with professional players alongside student mentee student players who are the best students from our, our Royal Academy and our Royal Colleges. But um, as a visual feast, the, the, some of the young people in the audience were saying it was like experiencing music, not hearing music. Oh, it's amazing. Really what I wanted it, to achieve. I, well, I hope, will, will you be bringing this group to the U.S.? Because if so, uh, I will help you find whatever venue you need. I'll, I'll go searching for my own concrete factory. I'd love to see it here. Thank you. Well, I, that, uh, several people have suggested we do that. Well, I hope it, ha I hope it happens. And, and you. you'll have to let me know and I can spread the word We're for you. We're certainly bringing Aura to the U.K. We're bringing Aura to Dallas next uh, in in september in september okay and we're working with josh haberman's choir oh wonderful we're doing a festival together um with aura and his group so i'm very excited about that very good the um uh, aura now back to rita aura was one of your students previously you said yes for, for, for she was with me for seven years and in what capacity well she came i mean she, they they were refugees from kosovo and I, I ran um, for many years um, a Kodai-based uh, musicianship class for tiny little kids from the age of three all the way through to, to when they, their voices broke. They were uh, so, uh, sort of pre-puberty development through singing, through the Zoltan Kodai methodology. And I did this in a refugee school in a very, very, very um, disadvantaged part of London. And uh, she, her mother brought her in every, every, every class. She never missed a class. And recently, the newspapers tried to get hold of me. And I said to my agent, what's going on? And so she investigated a bit. And she said, well, Rita Ora's just done a press conference because she's about to be, be a judge on, on The Voice. And she said, um, there was someone who believed in me when I was young. And I want to do the same. And that's why I am where I am. And I want to do the same for other young people. And they dug around and, and they found out it was me. So they wanted they wanted stories about Rita. And I didn't speak to them because there weren't really any stories about Rita. She was a, just a regular, fabulous little girl who was a, you know, a star. And um, she became a, a superstar. And she's a lovely person, too. So she encapsulates everything I think early music education gives to a human being. I mean, you know, she was a refugee. She had very little... And it was the singing 
and her self-belief that those classes gave her that made, made her able to create an incredible career for herself with confidence. That's great. Well, congratulations on, I mean, it's so cool to hear, to hear when, you know, those affirmations that you've made an impact and, and especially when they're on that grand of a scale. So congratulations exactly. to you. And there are lots of other little ones who haven't perhaps got, got famous, but I hope they've, they've been, become, um, you know, people who really believe in themselves through singing. Absolutely. Well, listen, let, let's, for the sake of time, let's go to your forte. Um, this is, we had spoken a little bit about your work as an educator, as a choral conductor, and you know, you're, you're wanting to really just change the world, leave that lasting impression. Uh, and that's created, uh, a lot of avenues for you to become, I guess we consider a serial entrepreneur. Yes. So tell us a little bit about, about those different endeavors and, 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 you know, how that caters to your strengths. Okay, so I think there are two things. First of all, I, I have a, a sort of almost um, uncontrollable urge to sort of change the world through music. And um, it's, it's a, real, a very strong drive. And so I look for opportunities where things are not happening, and then I create organizations to make them happen. And so I started by creating the Voices Foundation, and that's now become the, the leading um, music education charity in the United Kingdom, um, for primary schools, so that's state primary schools, and there are nineteen thousand of them in in England, and we're we're in we've worked very very closely with the government over many years. So we've got singing into the national curriculum. We um, and this isn't just me, but the whole movement that's really been growing since the early nineties. We've got we've got thirty million pounds, which I guess is about fifty million dollars, to to be put into singing in primary schools, which I think is a first worldwide. And also we have a national plan for music, and it's the only subject for which we have a national plan. And that is a government, a central government plan for music. And Voices Foundation is the body that's in there recommended for all 19,000 primary schools. So I'm terribly proud of what we've achieved. And we go into schools and we work with every teacher and every child and we enskill them so that music is taught with the same confidence and the same skills and resources as all the subjects, as mathematics and literacy and everything. So that, that we've really made strong inroads there and we've got music in the national curriculum, which means it's statutory, it's obligatory for every child in the United Kingdom up to the age of 14. So, so that's Voices Foundation. Then, um, more recently, I started Vocal Futures, and we're also working with the government, with the, with the Arts Council, hopefully, to over the next three years, to make us into a national body. And that is to make recommendations to all the presenting bodies um, about how they can encourage 16 to 22s to attend their concerts. Because I think it's a really important age group where, where kids are, they have usually a very bad cultural diet, and they need great art I think and particularly great music to help them form their words their their ideas about how they relate to the world and so vocal futures you know we we really need to be very attentive about production values because kids need something visual they need something multimedia they need but they they don't need dumbing down and I think this is what where people go wrong is they dumb down they think they need to dumb down and make everything shorter and bite-sized and and everything, and I just think I, my experience is the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, but that's vocal futures. Um, then, um, I two, two and a half years ago, I created the London Youth Choir, which is now 
known all over the world um and we've we've had this sort of epic rise really i think it's been amazing that there wasn't one beforehand but we serve all 32 boroughs in london and multi communities so we we go out into the communities into the minority communities and we really search the search out the talent and then we bring them to audition and then we make sure they're able to come every week so when you look at london youth choir which is 350 kids in five choirs from eight to 22 and the top of the choir there are 16 choral scholars who are really really good you see London you don't just see and London is the most multi-community place in the world it's the most you know uh, it has more languages than any other city in the world and so I'm very proud that London Youth Choir really represents the it's not it's not white middle-class London it's the whole of London so that's London Youth Choir and we just it's so exciting I I can hardly believe how I've got the most amazing conductors and young leaders and people who support us and such. And then, so that's number three. And then Voce Chamber Choir is an amateur choir, um, but it's a very high level amateur choir. It, we have a lot of ex-Oxford and Cambridge choral scholars who are with us. It's young, it's vibrant, and we perform with the Rolling Stones. And since then I've become the Rolling Stones fixer, if you like, for choirs. And so I've just finished the, their latest US tour, fixing their choirs. So I've done 60 choirs in 60 cities for the Rolling Stones, and amongst those, 30 uh, US choirs. You're a busy lady. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm very good at delegating. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's, that is, that is an incredible skill if you can become a great delegator. Um, because that that frees you up to do what you are best at, um, which is which is obviously creating more things and being the artistic visionary for these groups and, and things and like the, that. And the key, yes, and the key thing is to keep them going. You know, it's it's easy to start. Well, it's relatively easy to start something up. It's very hard to keep it going, so that it it survives when you go under a bus. Well, let's okay. So let <laughs> you go under yeah. a bus. <laughs> The the okay so the thing I want the thing I want to sort of bring us all back to is is and maybe ask some more questions about this is if I if I am a an ambitious choral director that has um, similar let's say similar ambitions to to Susie Digby and and they just they want to change the world and they just don't know how to start. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know there's a lot of people, very ambitious people that are listening right now that are like, oh, that just sounds so cool. Look at, listen, all these, you know, she's got all these wonderful things. She's just able to rattle off, you know, about all of the, you know, the money that's gone into the Voices Foundation, but it had to start, had to start somewhere. And, yeah. and I don't want people to think, well, you know, this is, um, you know, doing great things is, is for the privileged few, um, exactly. So, so, so I, I, a lot of people ask me about this because the only clear path, there is no clear path behind you. The, uh, sorry, there's no clear path ahead of you. The only clear path is the one behind you. And there is no shortcut. You have to work incredibly hard and you have to be prepared to lose all your friends because every time I see something, someone, I'm thinking, are they going to be able to, to help? Are they going to be able to give money? Are they? And you're constantly, constantly raising funds. And raising funds is a very, very difficult thing. You have to be used to fail. You have to be, nine times out of ten, you'll get a no. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And when people say they're not good at raising money, it's probably because they don't have the. It, you, there's no. It's no rocket science. You just have to be incredibly determined. You have to be used to being being rejected. And you have to just keep going and keep going and keep going. And um, rejection is a big part of it. Um, But if you have a very clear vision and you have a reputation for being strategically uh, able, you have to have very good strategy. So the planning stage has to be extremely carefully done. You, You can't start something which is shambolic and expect people to put money into it. So people have to trust, first of all, they, they have to want to buy into your vision. So you've got to do it eye to eye. You can't write letters and expect people to give money from writing letters or writing emails. You've got to go get out there and eyeball people and convince them of your vision, convince them of your strategy, and they've got to be what the want to be part of it. And uh, some people come to me, and I, I get annoyed when people come to me and they haven't done their research. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're a busy person, you, you you know, you if someone comes to you with an idea, you'll be receptive if they've really done their homework. And so there's a lot, there's a lot you have to do to to carry people with you. And there's no easy solution except, as I say, to surround yourself with people that are better than you. That's another thing about leadership is you've got to surround yourself with people who, are, who can do the things you can't do. So... If you're a great musician, you might not necessarily be a good, good strategist. So bring someone in who can help you do your business plans. And you've got to build a team. Uh, you've got to keep people with you who are good. Um, people who are not good, um, you know, you've got to make sure that they don't hang around mm-hmm. so that you build your team safely and with, with a lot of loyalty. And, um and then, you know, you've just got to be very, 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 very determined and very visionary and strategically able. Um, but it's not just for the privileged people. I mean, I get quite annoyed when people say to me, oh, you're so good at fundraising. You know, that's OK for you because you've got contacts and stuff. But I've, I've worked so hard to build those contacts. And um, right. how many know, years, how many years oh, of networking yeah. does it take to get to 50 million dollars in 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 charity for voices foundation i mean how many there's going to be years upon years upon years and you're probably jog- years, years and years and then you have you i think things go in seven year cycles because things will be going really 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 well and then suddenly you'll hit a very bad patch and then you have to keep everyone with you and it's sleepless nights and you know people people will leave if if you know people don't like to be associated with failure they like to be associated with success mm-hmm. And so you've got to keep everyone going through the rough times and you can't give up. You mustn't be a quitter. But, you know, and so sometimes you, you, you have to take, you know, so this thing about this, the humiliations or the criticism or whatever, you have to take all that. But also you mustn't be, I think the biggest problem is ego. If you have ego, that's probably your biggest enemy. Um, because you have to be able to, um, you know, really... At certain times, you have to take criticism. You have to take unpopularity. You have to take, and you have to listen. Well, that rejection will hurt so much more, and and yeah. it shouldn't. Well, yeah. you know, I'm I'm thinking because you know, if you have a really, if you have a really wonderful plan and a really wonderful agenda, and you go to somebody and say, and you say, you know, I'm really passionate about this, blah blah blah. You know, would you make a donation? And they say no. 
they you haven't lost you haven't lost any respect from that person you've there you probably gained respect because you asked first of all and if they weren't able to help you that's fine but but they're thinking wow that person is incredibly passionate about what they do and and maybe that no might turn into a yes from a from a friend yeah and there are two things if 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 they say no to the money you've asked them for let's say you, you say you know that this person can afford five thousand pounds and you say please give me five thousand pounds and they say no then you say well do you know of anyone else who might be interested? You know, and then you and you say, or can you help in other ways? Or, you know, that that you have to be creative, very, mm-hmm. very, very, very creative about fundraising without being a, a pain. You know, you don't want to put people off. So, so you're thinking on your feet all the time, and you're using a lot of energy to convert. You know, after all, it takes time and energy to go and see someone. I think people are very scared of rejection. I think people are very scared of failure. And sometimes that fear can manifest itself in all kinds of ways that that puts you puts you off course. So as long as you're not serving your ego, and it's that's not your principal drive, but but then you'll you'll be okay. I think if pe- people can see through you, if you if it's ego, I mean yes, that's the biggest co- compliment I ever got from a, a professional singer who's been around the block was you've got the least ego of any conductor I've worked with. And I just thought that's probably the nicest thing they could say. Absolutely. You need self-belief. And of course, everyone's got ego, but you've got to keep it in check and not, and just make sure that your, um, that your driving, uh, your drive comes from a, a very sincere place because people will see that. And sincere I think place with lots of hard work. This is, this has been coming up recently um, with with me and, and some of the things that that I'm working on here in in the U.S. Uh, and it's it, I want to sort of tell a very short narrative, but it sort of help drive home your point a little bit. We uh, I'm working right now on an advisory board for a wonderful wonderful wind ensemble called the Eastern Wind Symphony uh, that was just invited to play at the Midwest Clinic. Um, in Chicago uh, this coming December, which if, if anybody knows anything about the, Mid- the Midwest Clinic is like a really a crowning achievement uh, on any wind ensemble, um, you know, in, in America, if not internationally. And uh, they're working on fundraising right now um, to get all their membership to Chicago uh, to do this this amazing concert that they have a prime slot for Saturday at one at 1 p.m., which is like an amazing slot uh, at that particular that particular con- conference. And um, I'm working on the social media campaign and um, helping to direct the the members the members. I'm actually meeting on Saturday with the members to teach them how to to use Facebook properly to to give value um, to people well before you ask for something. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, that, that's uh, so often do we get little invites and things from people on social media, and I'm sort of skewing this towards social media right now, but, you know, come to my concert or donate for this, for this charity walk or thing, something that I'm doing. And it's like, I haven't talked to you in seven years, you know, like, like, you know, there's when you're asking for money and you're a much bigger expert on this than I am, but I just feel like the value that you provide to your network and to the people that you come into contact with has to start way before you're ready to ask for anything. And the other thing people forget 
is once you've got the money off someone, you've got to look after that person. You know, I'm guilty of, 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 of sometimes not perhaps looking after my early sponsors as well as I might have done. And I'm sure, you know, you've got to look after people because they, they will want to feel valued. Mm-hmm. And if you, can, if you can make them feel valued, because you've got to imagine what it's like being the donor. So what motivates a donor? And every environment is different. I mean, for some projects, and you've got a short space of time to raise a lot of money, then it's it's much more intelligent to go to very rich people and ask for big sums of money instead of spending a lot of time asking for the small bits of money. But, you know, you've got to do, you've got to think, stand right back and say, what do I need to raise? How am I going to raise it? Who am I going to raise it from? And how am I going to look after those people? And how am I going to build a base of support from which to to sustain this? Because, I mean, a lot of the big, big, big companies are going bust. That's no good because um, the big funders, the very big generous funders, you know, are very scared of putting money into a black into a into a big, you know, black hole. Mm-hmm. And so their money, their money has to feel safe, and they have to feel really nurtured and loved, having given money. Crowdfunding is a great thing too. Match funding is a great thing, but they've got to know that what they put money into is, you know, bring them along and to see what they've achieved, and make sure you put aside a bit of money to look after your funders. What have you found are the best? I would say the term perks. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah, I, I am. Like, what, what are the yeah? What are the, t- the the best perks for a for a donor at different at different levels of giving that you found? It depends on what on on the donor. I mean, there's the there are there are the donors who love to see their name on something. Mm-hmm. There are those who just you know to just come and to enter a school and see what their money has done. I mean, if you see a child being transformed through music, that's enough. So the anonymity is totally fine with them. They just want to see that it went somewhere. Yeah, if, they, if they can see, it's a, other people, they love to rub shoulders with others who have given. So, you know, an, a, a, an event where they can meet others who have given. Um, so not necessarily I, meet the choir or meet the children or the or, or they're they're interested in, in, in expanding, potentially expanding their own their own network through meeting other people that are like-minded sometimes sometimes yeah so so they'll see that that, that someone else has given and they'll think oh you know i quite like to be in the same company as that person who's given mm-hmm. or um you know so events i think things like free tickets and all that sort of stuff that sometimes isn't i mean i i, I sometimes i give too much i'll say if you give me five thousand pounds for you know sometimes i'll sell arias or whatever it is for a production um, and I'll say you can get six t- free tickets and you can get a manuscript score of this and you can get this. Then you have to make sure that you do all that stuff, which is very, very time consuming and, mm-hmm. and also expensive and sometimes not necessary. So I think it's Well, if you can afford to give $5,000, you can afford the tickets. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So so it's more a question of them feeling that they've they've really taken part in something. So you've got to, you know, to... to be in touch with them regularly to give them updated news long after they've given. I think that's really important. This has been a really, really helpful conversation. And I know there are, there are some amazing uh, uh, people out there that really have that entrepreneurship uh, bone and they, and they, they're just maybe a little bit insecure about, about how to start 
or or um, you know maybe they just haven't thought that it's it's for them. But I, I hope after this conversation that that people are feeling more comfortable with the idea of, of, of getting out there and starting something. And I would recommend, I'm not sure if you read this book, Susie, but um, there's a wonderful book. It's by the creator of Tom's Shoes, Blake Mykoski, and it's called Start Something That Matters. Uh, it's a really short read. It's a really easy read, um, but it's a really inspirational read for people that, that want to make a difference in the world um, through some sort of entrepreneurship endeavor, whether it's for-profit, non-profit, doesn't really matter. I think that we all go through the same motions at the beginning, and uh, we all jump through some very over some very similar hurdles throughout the throughout the journey. Uh, and I think you've definitely helped to to shed some light on on what those things are. And um, uh, you know, I know Choir Nation thanks you, and this will be a very popular episode, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Well, let's let's. I'm going to do the fastest Acelerando round we've ever done, and um, I have just a few more questions, and then we'll and then we'll get going. Um, sure. What are you most excited about right now? Um, Aura. Perfect. Um, I'm most excited about our launch in the Tower of London. We've been given been given permission by the Bishop of London to do our launch concert there. Oh wow! Interesting. Hopefully, hopefully in a big cell, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. All right. What advice do you have for your younger self? Ooh, um, my advice for my younger self: um, look after your friendships, look after your family. If you juggle balls, some of them bounce and some of them are glass, and they 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 smash. So you need to make sure everything is 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 in balance. Don't neglect the important things. What makes a great conductor? Um, a choral conductor teaching, uh, teaching your choir to listen, teaching your choir to listen. And um, a lot of preparation, we all know that. Um, very, very good choice of repertoire. What is your morning routine like? My morning routine is getting in as much coffee into my system as I possibly can, <laughs> as fast as I can. What's your brand? Um, I use um, an Italian, oh, what's it called? A, a very high quality Italian thing, and I do a, a cafetiere. Italian coffee, very strong. Very strong. Okay, perfect. And then masses of emails before I get going. Get all my overnight emails done before I start the day. Well, you know, you have you have a series of gatekeepers, Susie, and uh, do they do they filter your email for you? No, I no? do all my own emails, but they they do my diary. Okay. <laughs> what is your most favorite concert that you've ever attended as a as a listener? Um. Okay, so probably um, Parsifal in Bayreuth. I was I was numb. I could hardly. Uh, I was I, I lost consciousness. I think afterwards I couldn't even hear the audience clapping at the end. I was so transported. Who was the director? It well, that was conducted by um, uh, Levine. Oh, James Levine. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Uh, all right, think about this one here. Oh, actually, no. We're gonna go. We're gonna go to your favorite personal growth or music book. Oh. Uh. Probably Which required um, Baron reading Boehm, Baron Boehm and Saeed, conversations between Baron Boehm and Saeed on music. Okay. 
I, I I'm not familiar with that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna look uh, look Incredible. up that one. Okay, I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna post a link to Amazon um, for that particular book uh, once I once I figure out how to spell everything you just said. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, if Choir Nation wants to support the podcast, they'll buy the link from, I'm sorry, buy the book from the Amazon link. So um, that would be really great if you would want to go and, and check that book out. Uh, all right, here's the big one. If you had only one concert left in your lifetime, a choir with limitless ability and access to a sold out concert venue of your choosing, this is two parts here, where would your final concert be? And what would be the last piece on that program? Okay, it would be the Matthew Passion of Bach. It would be in um, the Musikverein in Vienna. And it would be um, Aura, my, my professional choir Aura. It would be me conducting. <laughs> well, no, it should be. It should be you conducting. <laughs> oh, good. Good. No, um, you better be you conducting. Yeah. No one else. Okay, perfect. That's a great answer. I think I, I feel like we've had Saint Matthew Passion as an answer before, but but not not the concert Ryan in in in, uh, in Vienna. Yes, that's a place I need to see. All right, well, give the listeners some parting words of encouragement, and then um, the best way that they can connect with you, uh, maybe some social media or, or or whatnot. Sure. Well, I suppose the 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 big message is um you know we are we are so privileged because we're in the position where we are enhancing lives through music and so every day um there should be people around you whose lives you will enhance through your choice of music and your dedication to your skill and your above all i think the vehicle the choice of music that you choose to to um to spend time on and and encourage others to spend time on so the choice of repertoires is key and don't give up if you feel depressed and miserable it's a very good sign because because great things sweet are the uses of adversity as shakespeare said um and that's my mantra so if you feel miserable you you can be sure something great will come out of it and the more miserable you feel the greater the thing that will come out of it will be and my um so i'm uh Susie Digby, S-U-Z-I or S-U-Z-I Digby. Um, you can find me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter, Susie Digby. And um, yeah, I can't wait to make more friends and to meet you guys. Very good. I'm I'm very excited to have to have made your acquaintance now and and um I know that Choir Nation is even more ready to step up to their podium with purpose after today's conversation. So thank you so much for being my guest today on Find Your Forte. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Susie Digby. Uh, just a reminder to make sure you check in and uh, become a member of the Facebook group Choir Nation. That's you. Uh, please make sure you you hop on over to Facebook and type in Choir Nation in the search bar and uh, request to join that group. That is really going to be a wonderful place for us to have uh, real positive interactions with the other members of the listening community. And uh, make sure that you sign up for access to the five-part series on working with changing male voices. Uh, so if you head over to ryanguth.com, uh, you can you can enter your email there and uh, you know request access to all the bonus materials that I'm sending out with the Technique Tuesday posts. 
Um, so don't miss anything. I don't want you to miss anything. And uh, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. That would be really wonderful as well. So until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.